Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Before we get to today's show, a quick reminder that this podcast is free for everyone and supported by those who can afford it. So uh, if you have found this podcast a useful companion during 2020, and you'd like to see it continue through 2021, I would invite you to go to plantyourself.com slash gift. If you are in a position where you have the means to support something that means something to you and hopefully uh, you think is doing good in the world. You can use PayPal or Patreon. You can make a one-time contribution or become an ongoing sustaining patron of the show. And if funds are too tight for you to show your appreciation in a monetary sense, you can still leave a review of the Plant Yourself podcast on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. That also helps us a great deal. All right, on to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Today's guest, Michael Edelstein, is a proteinaholic reader to whom I reached out when I saw his email domain, 3minutetherapy.com. So as someone who has spent probably the equivalent of two full years in therapy, and I'm far from where I want to be, I was intrigued. So I checked Michael out and discovered that he's really quite a big deal in the world of rational therapy, the branch that includes CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and RAET, which we'll get into. Michael's written books about recovering from alcohol addiction, about stage fright, and about his signature methodology, three-minute therapy. So using my uh, proteinaholic co-author cred, I reached out to Michael and invited him to join me on my Triangle Be Well TV show. And he was so insightful and helpful to me and to listeners that I just devoured his book, Three Minute Therapy. And, and I saw articulated in the clearest way ever the difference between helpful and unhelpful thinking. And that one distinction, which we will cover in our conversation, has improved my life immensely. And it's made me a much better coach for my wellness clients. In today's conversation, we focus on two of the main obstacles to adopting a healthy diet and lifestyle addiction, and procrastination. I hope Michael's warmth and wisdom help you as much as they've helped me. So without further ado, Dr. Michael Edelstein, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Oh, it's great to speak with you, Howard. Yeah, so we, we already had a kind of a, a wild and woolly conversation on my Triangle Be Well TV show. Um, so I have a, you know, a sense of, of what you're about, and you kindly sent me a, a copy of your book, which I have been devouring. Um, so let's, and we're, we're going to be talking a lot about the sort of the psychological underpinnings of behaviors and habits that we would rather not have, especially around eating and overeating and indulgence. But let's start with um, kind of your, your story, your background. How did you get to be Dr. Michael R. Edelstein? Well, when I was uh, 18, I was anxious, depressed, procrastinating, you name it. And uh, I went for therapy with a psychoanalytically oriented therapist. And uh, when I told him about a problem I had, he would say, tell me more about it. Or why do you feel that way? That was pretty much his repertoire. <laughs> and uh, it was he was a very nice guy and it was very nice to speak with him. But I didn't feel or get any better between sessions. And then I heard Albert Ellis speak. Uh, and what he said made a lot of sense to me. So when I was 19, I started seeing Albert Ellis. 
He was in New York, and I was in New York at the time, and he was my therapist. And I improved dramatically uh, as a result of the therapy. And I thought, this is a great uh, field for me, because as I was learning his approach called Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy, REBT, I started to do it with my friends and relatives and anyone who would listen, and even some people who wouldn't listen. And uh, so it was sort of a natural field. So I got into that field myself. And uh, everything I do is based on what I learned from Albert Ellis, who was a pioneering psychologist in the 20th century and has written over 80 books. And uh, now I really love helping people with their emotional and behavioral problems. Yeah. Now, Al Albert Ellis took a lot of lumps didn't he? He was going against the uh, a uh, a method of of psychoanalysis that was, I guess, ma more or less effective, but certainly kind of lucrative. Like, right? You 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 could have been there for decades, right? Exactly right. <laughs> once you once you got a patient, you had your BMW paid off and your condo paid off <laughs> because they would come a few times a week for years. Whereas uh, REBT is very brief therapy. It doesn't delve into your childhood or your dysfunctional family or crazy parents, but rather it looks at your thinking right now that causes your anxiety, depression, anger, overeating, and other psychological problems. Now, you begin the book by saying in, in large font, bold letters, one of, one of the chapter, one of the headings is your childhood is irrelevant to your current problems. And it, it doesn't feel that way to me, you know, you know, like I can see how like dealing with my father's anger or with, you know, whatever issue I had with my mother leads me to behave in certain ways today that I wouldn't behave if it hadn't been for that. So why do you say that that's irrelevant? Well, um, sometimes when I work with people, they tell me that the reason they're insecure and feel inadequate is because when they were growing up, their parents criticized them, and, they, uh, and that's the why they feel this way now. But I work with other people who tell me that they feel insecure and inadequate because when they were growing up, they had loving parents who were very positive and gave them a lot of approval and acceptance, and now they get anxious that they're not going to get it from, from people they deal with these days. So it just shows you that no matter what your upbringing is, it's what your thinking is now that causes your disturbance, not your childhood. And uh, the largest factor in a person's emotional health or uh, unhealth is their genetic predispositions. So it may look like that your mother was very critical of you, and now you're critical of yourself, and therefore you got it from her. But basically, what really happened was you inherited from her genes, and she inherited from, from her parents, and it goes back that way. So it's uh, the seen and the unseen. We see our childhood and what happened then, but we don't see our genes. And that's uh, the largest factor in our personality as an adult. So when you say our genes, you mean that there, there are people who are genetically predisposed to worry more than other people, to berate themselves more than other people, that that's, that's an operating system that has nothing to do with our, our environment and our experiences? Very good. You said it better than I could. <laughs> Very clear. Yes, that's exactly how it works. Uh, and uh, particularly identical twin studies have shown that 
kids who were separated as infancy and raised in totally different environments uh, as adults have very similar personalities and habits. See, now that's that's a fact that I would prefer not to believe for for a whole bunch of reasons. So you got to help me understand, like, what what is a possible reason for a gene that would make you self-critical? Well, it actually wouldn't be a gene. It's often a combination a combination of genes, and it's not that this makes you critical or addicted, but rather it, it gives you a predisposition to be that way. Uh, so we have these predispositions, and the reason I can help people is because we can uh, act against our predispositions and overcome them to a large extent, usually not entirely, but... Um, but they are predispositions, and they're usually a combination of genes. Some of these genes have actually, uh, or interaction of genes, have actually been identified, like with shyness, for example, and uh, alcohol problems and schizophrenia, uh, but others haven't. Oh, that, re that reminds me of the, the comedian Jonathan Katz, who said they, they just discovered the gene for shyness. So they would have discovered it years ago, but it was hiding behind some other genes. All right. Very good. So, so, um, but what, like, what's the, is there must be some sort of genetic, um, evolutionary advantage to all these. So is there some advantage to having these predispositions to things that make us need to become your patients and clients? Oh, well, there, there might be, uh, we could make up stories about what happened evolutionarily that led to these things. For example, um, one of the things I show my clients is that their uh, disturbed thinking consists of overgeneralizations. So you overgeneralize, for example, from I did a bad thing, therefore I'm a bad person. Mm -hmm. So evolutionarily, it could be that uh, two million years ago, as humans were evolving it was, it was uh, functional and life-saving to overgeneralize. For example, if you heard a rustle in the leaves, it might be good to decide there's a saber-toothed tiger about to pounce and run, even though you may be wrong. Uh, if you were right and you didn't run, you uh, wouldn't survive to promulgate your genes. So, uh, so there could have been reasons for overgeneralizing. Uh, and uh, that's been carried over to the present day. Gotcha. So, so we've we've changed our environment very, very qu quickly and comprehensively and dramatically, but our our genetic makeup is still fairly Stone Age, right? Exactly. Yeah, and we know that with food, where we go for the sugar and the fat, because a million years ago, uh, a, f a famine might be coming around the corner, and we would need this. But these days, there's too much fat and sugar around. Sure, sure. So you um, you have a uh, a model, which I guess I guess comes from from Albert Ellis and before him the Stoics and the Buddhists, um, and it's basically like a distinction between a preference and a demand. And that's like every single chapter I'm reading, that seems to be the, like the single key distinction. That if you get this then you can kind of solve all, all of these problems. Can you explain, first of all, what it is and, and why it's so central to the whole uh, REBT that you do? Yes, it is very central. And I think if you look at great philosophies, often 
they can be uh, honed down to one central premise. For example, with eating, we have a central premise, eat plants, you know, and that, that has profound ramifications. Or, or with relativity, E equals MC squared, and that has profound ramifications. And in therapy, the central idea, as you're saying, Howard, is give up all absolutistic demands, give up all musts and shoulds, and just reinforce your preferences. So to be a little more specific about that, there are three main demands that humans have that lead to emotional disturbance. And the first one is a demand on oneself. And that takes the form of, because I strongly prefer to do well and get approval, therefore I absolutely must, I have to, and if I fail or you criticize me, then I'm no good, I'm worthless, I'm a failure. And that leads to anxiety, depression, and guilt. The second main demand is a demand on others, and that takes the form of, because I strongly prefer you treat me well, therefore you absolutely must, and if you fail, you're no good, you're rotten, you deserve to roast in hell, and I've appointed myself your roaster. <laughs> and that, that leads to hostility, resentment, and anger. And the final demand is a demand on, not a demand on people, oneself or others, but rather it's a demand on the impersonal conditions of one's life, and that takes the form of life must be fair, easy, and hassle-free. And if it's not, then my life is no good. It's horrible, it's awful, and I'm going to be miserable forever. And that leads to procrastination and addictions. Uh, so those are the three main musts. And as you see, they all come from strong preferences. So the musts are irrational and lead to disturbance, but the preferences are the opposite. They're self-facilitating, and they lead to enjoying life, having challenges, and working toward those challenges, to overcoming the challenges. Mm -hmm. So something I thought when I was reading that is there was a little bit of fear in me of giving up my musts because you know there's, there's a whole sort of um, personal development world out there that this is you you know you have to be uncompromising if you if you just have a preference you're not going to achieve it you know like you know tony robbins if i can't i must that's that sort of thing i'm going to burn my you know burn the ships at the shore and and a preference feels like such a a weak namby pamby word you know do, do you get that from 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 clients of yours from patients oh, yeah. yeah i've heard that many times uh because they uh confuse a preference with a weak emotion or a weak uh, cognition, but you could have very, very strong preferences, passionate preferences that lead you to have large goals and work toward them undeterred in the face of uh, blocks and uh, refuse to give up. Whereas must tend to either lead to compulsive behavior or giving up. Mm. Uh, so, and the reason why preferences do lead to strong behavior and passions is because a preference means if I achieve my preference, 
then I get advantages in my life. I get a better life. And if I don't achieve my preferences or my goals or objectives, then that's disadvantageous and it harms my pursuit of enjoyment and productivity. So because we all would like to uh, feel happy, have a better life, get along with people, then having that strong preference and avoiding the disadvantages of not achieving it leads to concerted action and strong emotions. Uh -huh. So I think I might have accidentally hit upon this principle many, many years ago when I was a young school teacher and I was tasked with uh, teaching some PE classes and there was a lot of um, bad sportsmanship in, in these in the games and you know, kids would go out and play soccer at lunch and there'd be fights and arguments and I and what I ended up doing was I made them all pledge before the game I'm okay with losing and you know it didn't change how hard they wanted to win but at the end they realized they'd made this pledge they couldn't they couldn't come in you know, angry. They couldn't, they couldn't be like, I'm worse off for having played and lost. So is that, is that the sort of distinction you're talking about between a preference and a demand? Uh, yes, to some extent, it's certainly getting in that direction. I would put it a little differently and I'd say, it's not the end of the world if I lose. It doesn't make me a failure if I lose, hmm. but it's really not okay because I wanted to win. So it's, it's not okay if I lose, but I'm okay I'm still the same person I was before I lost the game. Gotcha. gotcha. So um, when you're talking about the three types of demands on yourself, on others, and on the impersonal um, Situation. situations of, of life itself, um, I'm struck by the neatness of the cause and effect where, you know, the one causes anxiety, depression. Um, I can't read my handwriting here. I think it starts with a G. <laughs> demand on others causes anger, resentment, hostility, and the third, a demand on life causes procrastination and addictions. Right. So, and, and so let's, let's talk about the third one, since that's mostly yeah. closely related to food. So yeah. the, the demands on life itself, you gave me three, that life has to be fair, easy, and hassle-free. Why, why are those the three bedrock um, irrational demands on life itself? Well, actually, those are the main ones, but when you start off with life must go well, you can think of many ways life must may not go well. It may not be fair. It may not be hassle-free. It may not be easy. But also, it may not be ordered. It may not be comfortable. It may be boring, etc. cetera. So mm -hmm. there are a lot more. The, the fair, easy, and hassle-free are just some common ones. I see. Okay. Uh, but so ha so what's what's the heuristic that goes on in my head when I say life, you know, life must be fair and something happens that feels unfair to me. How does that lead to procrastination and addiction if I make that demand? OK, well, if uh, you have dishes piling up and it's time to wash them and you think, it's unfair that I have all these dishes to wash. Life must be fair. I'll do them tomorrow. Uh -huh. If you have some broccoli in front of you and you think, well, I'd rather have ice cream. It's unfair that I have to eat this broccoli to be healthy. Therefore, I can't stand it. I'll just have the ice cream. And then you're addicted to the ice cream and the sugar and, and other toxic foods. Hmm. Um, so, but if, but is it always the thought about the food or the 
activity that I'm procrastinating or, or, or can I, like, would I, could I procrastinate, um, you know, working out for some other, for some other reason? It seems, it seems like, you know, there's been a lot of ink spilled on about procrastination. Um, yeah. you're saying it, it all comes down to this feeling of it's unfair that I should have to do this now. No, no, it's unfair. It's just one aspect that, remember, as we were uh -huh. saying, is fair, easy, and hassle-free. But if we were to look for an umbrella term that describes all of these, it would be discomfort. Mm -hmm. It's time to go exercise now, but it'll be uncomfortable to get up off the seat and get out and go to the gym. It's time to have some greens, but it's somewhat uncomfortable because it's not as tasty as uh, ice cream or steak. So, uh, so I'll have the ice cream or steak because I can't stand the discomfort. So uh, I would maintain that all procrastination comes down to some kind of discomfort and the idea that life shouldn't be so uncomfortable, so I'll do the comfortable thing for the moment and then parenthetically make my life more uncomfortable in the long run. Mm-hmm. So Does that answer the question, Howard? Yeah, yeah, and you know, and you, and you'd said something. I think I think you'd you'd said it. I don't think I read it in the book because it's, it's been sort of you know a worm through my brain for the last little while, and 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 I've been thinking and talking about this a lot. Is that, that basically the that the procrastination is is based on a mistaking that my preference for this is the way the way it's got to be. In other words, like. Take like worshiping my preference, exactly. a, a, a kind of a, 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 like that's more important than reality. That's right. Deifying your preference and making it all important rather than just somewhat important or largely important at the 98% level important, but not 101% important. Because if you don't get your preference, all you get is disadvantages, hassles, not horrors, not terrors, not devils chasing you with a pitchfork, but just disadvantages and you can go on with your life with disadvantages. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the other things that I, that I've put into my mental hopper around this is uh, there's a book by a guy named Bob Neese, a business book and it's called the power of 50 bits. It, it, it refers to the amount of attention that our brain can, you know, can a lot to our tasks at any given moment. And he talks about the mathematics of procrastination, which is yeah. that, and I think it's, it's something like similar to what you're saying is that, you know, the, the, the mathematics are that there's a benefit in the future and a cost in the present or a discomfort in the present. And we value the present more than we value the future. Yes. And the reason we value the present more than we value the future in when it's self-defeating to do so is because we put the present, as you said, we uh, deify the present. We make it all important. And uh, and then the, the long term fades into the background. And the reason we do that is because of the must. Because I prefer to have the delicious uh, steak now, I absolutely must have it. So we put off uh, the long term benefits of avoiding the steak. Mm -hmm. So it's it's easier said than done to certain to a certain extent to just say change your Belief, change, you know, change your thinking, change your beliefs, but it's also easier said than done to say learn Italian, 
Right. right? Exactly. If I said to you, you know, I, come on, speak Italian. Millions of people all over the world speak Italian. I'd like to hear some now. You might not be able to do it, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. So what, what is the, the methodology that you employ and that you teach people to get them to change this thinking so they can separate the, the, the demands from the preferences? Yeah, that's a key question. And the answer is based on the same learning principle we use to learn most things. And that says uh, learning comes from reinforcement, from going over something again and again and again. And the way you learn Italian, if you're not an Italian speaker, is by practicing it, by going over it again and again, practicing it, studying it. Uh, and that's the same way to learn to think in terms of preferences rather than must. By questioning, challenging, and contradicting the must, which, uh, and you have reality on your side when you do that, because there are no musts in reality. There are no absolute demands. They're just in our head. We invent them. So by practicing contradicting that and questioning it over and over again, then you begin to change the networks in your brain, and you tend to think in terms of preferences rather than demands and create a lot less anxiety and depression and addictions for yourself. Mm. So when you say that reality is on our side, that there's no musts in reality, that's, that's a hard thing for people to see. If I, if I say, you know, the, the guy who shot up that nightclub in Orlando should not have done that. He must, that people must not behave that way. That feels very real, you, you know, but you're saying that that's, not, that's, that's inherent in my thinking, not in reality. Well, yes, and it depends on what you mean by must. Up to this point, we've been talking about psychopathological must, which means when you think in terms of must, you get anxious, angry, or addicted. But if when you say this must not happen, you're not upset, you just really mean it's very, very bad, and uh, it's life would be much better if it didn't happen, then that's okay. So mm -hmm. we're just talking about the absolutistic musts that lead to emotional disturbance. I see. So those are, those are more things like you must not leave the toothpaste cap off. Now, it depends on whether you're angry or not when you tell yourself that. Some people are angry when they think my partner should not leave the toothpaste cap off. He's rotten. I can't stand it. It's the end of the world. Then that's the kind of must that we're trying to avoid. Gotcha. Gotcha. So if, if someone is, um, comes to you and the, you're telling them you've got to practice this, is, isn't, and, and they're the sort of person who procrastinates and prefers, you know, practicing something you, you're not good at is hard, right? So how do you get people to even start if the, the problem is they're going to procrastinate something that's hard and you're asking them to do something that's hard? Well, there are a number of steps there, Howard. The first is to explain to them that the reason they come to me is because they have a problem and they're not going to get over the problem. They're not going to get satisfaction unless they change their perspective on how to get there. And the perspective is by putting in some work. And I have something which you alluded to earlier in each chapter in my book, Three Minute Therapy, called the Three Minute Exercise. And it's a way of writing out your musts and shoulds and questioning them and contradicting them uh, in, on paper or on your computer. And if you do that every day, 
then you'll see you'll have a change in thinking and a change in your behavior. But if someone uh, procrastinates on that, then I have other suggestions for them. And one of the most powerful one is reinforcement. So you have a goal, for example, write out a three-minute exercise every day or just eat plants today. You have a goal. And then you have a reward or penalty. <clears throat> if you achieve the goal, you give yourself the reward. And if you don't, you give yourself the penalty. And a reward is something that you normally don't do, which you would like to do, and that you would do if you achieve the goal. For example, taking yourself out to dinner, going to a movie, um, listening to some music. Uh, there are an uh, infinite number of rewards people could use, but often more powerful is the penalties. And penalties could be monetary or non-monetary. So your goal is to write out a three-minute exercise every day. Any day you don't, you send $10 to your least favorite charity, or you rip up $10, <laughs> or you don't allow yourself to brush your teeth before going to bed or change your clothes. So there are infinite number of penalties that people come up with that they could levy if they don't achieve the goal. Yeah. So that... That, I guess, is a short-term solution, right? You don't want people going through life doing things for the sake of rewards and penalties. Well, actually, if you think of it, Howard, everything we do, uh, we do because we think we'll get some kind of reward or benefit if we do it. Mm. The reason I got out of bed this morning is because I thought the advantages or the rewards of getting out of bed when the alarm went off, outweighed the disadvantages. So uh, does that make sense? That that's how we live our lives and that's how we live moment to moment. Everything we do, everything we say we do because on some subconscious level, we decide that we'll get some benefit from doing it. Yeah, I guess, I guess I'm thinking about the, the work of uh, the educator Alfie Cohn, who wrote a book called Punished by Rewards, showing that kids in school very often, you know, but when they're ex extrinsic rewards for doing things, then they don't like to do them anymore. So, you know, if you have kids and it's like, eat your broccoli and you'll get dessert, like that suddenly cre creates a problem where the broccoli is, is seen as less desirable. So is it possible for us to do that to ourselves accidentally? Uh, see, I, I think that the disanalogy there uh, is, uh, even though this doesn't work with kids in that situation. When I work with parents who are trying to get their kids to do something, uh, I give them different instructions, and that is, number one, explain to your child why doing what you want them to do has more benefits to them, not to you, but to them, than disadvantages. So they want to do the thing, like get to bed early. Uh, and then number two, if you're gonna use rewards or penalties, Ask them what would be rewarding to them uh, and what they would like. Don't impose it on them, which they often do in the classroom situations. Okay, gotcha. Because I'm, I'm thinking now about a quote by you know, Marshall Rosenberg, who uh, you know, created nonviolent communication, and he's talking about his, you know, parenting his children. And he, said, he said, you know, I can make them wish they did, but they can make me wish I didn't make them wish they did. Right, like, Exactly. So you so you're saying don't don't turn it into a power struggle, but enlist enlist them and 
um, used their own intrinsic motivations and just uh, operationalized them with rewards and penalties that are meaningful to them. Exactly. And this is a, a general sales strategy when you want to sell somebody something, whether it's to get to bed early or, or a computer, you sell it to them by telling them the benefits that are meaningful to them, not the benefits that are meaningful to you. Because people do what they think will make their life better. So if you show, it, show them how it makes their life better, whether they're your child or, or your customer, then you have a better chance of uh, persuading them. Uh huh. So um, what what about? So we've been talking sort of in ge you know general behavioral terms, but we, as you know, when you talk about food, there's also biological stuff going on. How how does the how does the fact that people can feel addicted to fat and sugar and meat and things like that play into this model? Well, uh, because of our biological predispositions, we prefer to have uh, certain tastes like fat or sugar. And uh, so it's just a pre that's a preference. And then if we say, because I prefer to have this candy now, I absolutely must have it, I can't stand denying myself, then you've addicted yourself to the candy. So you're saying the, the addiction is not <clears throat> intrinsic or biological, that addiction is simply the same mistake of, in thinking, of, of mistaking a preference for a must? That's right. Uh, our, our biology and our environment are influences. So I'm influenced by my biology to want to go for the sweet taste. But that's just an influence and as you're saying, Howard, what makes all the difference is what we tell ourselves, our thinking about the influence, whether we make it just to a preference, which has advantages and disadvantages, or a must, which has world-ending scenarios psychologically. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like what you're saying is the, the, diff the, the thing in between the demand and the preference is free will. Right. That if we if we admit that we have free will, <clears throat> then we can take or leave the preference, even if the preference is ninety nine point nine percent. Yes. Uh, and there's a saying about free will, and that is, um, although free will doesn't exist, we're better off thinking it does. So, so whether it exists or not, and that's another subject, uh, as long as we think we have free will, then more we're more likely to make decisions that benefit us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and to me that, you know, if, if it's acting as if we have free will, to me, that's all about being the locus of control, taking control of our lives. It seems like a lot of the um, current approaches to addiction encourage us to do just the opposite, especially the sort of 12-step programs to admit we're powerless. You're, you're saying just the opposite. It, realize that you are, you are powerful, right? Yeah, exactly right. And the fact that if you're addicted to alcohol, for example, the fact that you opened the bottle, poured it in the glass and drank it shows you have power. You weren't powerless. If you were powerless, the bottle would have knocked you down and poured itself down your throat. Then I'd say you were powerless. Uh -huh. But that doesn't happen. You have the power. So the issue is, are you using the power you have in a constructive way or a destructive way? So if when they say in uh, AA, you're powerless. If they were to speak more accurately, 
which they don't, they would say, uh, you're using the power you have destructively. Let me show you how to use it constructively, not that you're powerless. And I've worked with people who said they use that as an excuse to drink. Well, I'm powerless, so I'll just have another drink. <laughs> right. And um, and so when you when you work with people who who have, you know, what they think of as food addictions, they simply can't not have the sugar uh, do you, do you tell them that they need to become abstinent or is there, you know, is there a way if you change your thinking that you could have a sort of a cordial occasional relationship with these foods? Uh, that's an important question. And uh, studies have shown that people who have had severe drinking problems most of the time, but not all the time succeed through abstinence, but there is a minority who, ultimately succeed as moderate drinkers. So that would go for food or any other kind of addiction that I can think of. That uh, So I won't tell them that abstinence is the only way. I tell them that it is possible you could do it moderately, but uh, and I could give you ways to succeed at moderation. But if you tried moderation 99 times and failed 99 times, then that's giving you a message that maybe abstinence is the way to go for you. And then there's even a middle of the road between that, and that is when someone wants to go for moderation, I often suggest abstaining for a period of time just to practice a new way of thinking and new strategies. And then once you've mastered those, then you can try for moderation. Uh-huh. Because there's, there, there's something about moderation that, you know, is both scary uh, but also, but also very empowering that, you know, the thought that at any, and I, and I, and I think this way pretty much about food. Like I don't, I don't label myself. So every day I wake up, think like, what do I want to eat today? And I allow the possibility that, you know, animal products might be in there. I haven't in, you know, a really long time. Um, but it, it feels to me like there's something empowering about giving myself that choice and seeing what my preferences are. Yeah, and that's why I like Joel Furman's idea of nutritarianism. He doesn't say you can never have certain foods. He just says uh, if you're going to have certain foods, do it very, very rarely. So it's not an abstinence model. Mm -hmm. So is is that? Do you find that difference between people who can handle moderation, and we're talking about real moderation, not you know the American excuse for for three binges a day, but and and people who need to be completely abstinent? Is that genetic as well? Or is it based on thinking? Uh, well, there, I, that's a good question. And I really don't know why some people succeed at moderation and others don't on a deep level. I imagine to some extent there is a genetic influence there, but there are other things. Maybe they won't work as hard at moderation as is required for them to be successful. Uh, so that's, an, that's one factor. Or it could have to do with their environment. If everyone around them is eating poorly, then uh, moderation might be a lot more difficult for them than just abstinence and no, no matter what happens, they're not going to have certain food. So uh, I don't mm. know the, the fundamental answer to that question, but the main one is when they fail at moderation, it's because they drag in the muss. I must have another uh, hamburger, or I must have some more sweets, 
after having them moderately. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So you you have a chapter about self esteem, and one of the things that I've heard for a long time is that the whole sort of addiction or overeating or being overweight is a, a symptom of low self esteem. The people don't love themselves enough. Um, what do you think of that? Well, I think uh, my model that we've discussed disproves that, that someone could have very good self-acceptance. In other words, they don't have must, number one, a demand on themselves, but they have low frustration tolerance. They convince themselves they can stand the frustration of not having another course of food, and uh, therefore they'll have it, and that leads to their uh, weight problem or compulsive eating problem, uh, not low self-esteem. Mm. I think one of the reasons a lot of people uh, bring it down to self-esteem is because somehow the idea of self-esteem is a less elusive idea than the idea of low frustration tolerance. And maybe because just about everyone has low frustration tolerance to some extent, everyone procrastinates in something in their life that it just seems normal. Whereas the self-esteem idea, when someone's depressed, or miserable, it's clearer that there's a self-esteem problem there. Mm-hmm. So w- when I come to you with a specific issue, we're going to work on the, you know, the ABC model, the, uh, which I guess you haven't, you haven't described yet in this call. Could you kind of des- describe the ABCDEF model? Yes, I alluded to that. I, I call it the three-minute exercise. And um, that gives you a way to see clearly in black and white what your problem is, what your thinking is, and a way to overcome it. So to be more specific, suppose A is, um, temp- I have the temptation to eat meat. And then uh, B is, because I would like to eat meat, I absolutely must, I can't stand depriving myself, and that leads to C, compulsive eating. Mm-hmm. So that pretty much frames the problem. Uh, A, the temptation. B, I must satisfy my craving and C, the compulsive eating. And then we go on to do something about it at D, E, and F. D is disputing or questioning the irrational belief. So the irrational belief was I must satisfy my craving. So to question that, you just say why or what is the evidence? I absolutely must satisfy my craving. And then to answer that, you go on to E, E, effective new thinking, or the answer to the question. And the answer is, if you think about it, there's no reason I absolutely have to satisfy my craving. It won't kill me if I don't have this hamburger, although I would like to feel good right now and have it. But if I don't, it's just frustrating, disappointing, hardly the end of the universe. I've survived frustration in the past, and I'll survive it in the future. Uh, it's not the frustration itself that forces me to eat the hamburger, but rather it's my unrealistic thinking about it. And with practice, I can change my thinking. And then once you internalize that, and as we were saying, that takes practice, repetition, reinforcement. Once you internalize those ideas, then you get to F, a new feeling or behavior, which would be controlled eating rather than compulsive eating. So that's what I emphasize to my clients to practice right out again and again and again, a new way of thinking. And as long as that new way of thinking is meaningful to them, 
then they start to think that way, just like practicing Italian leads you to start thinking in Italian. So when you first tell people, all right, let's do a D on B, let's dispute your belief, do they, at first, do they kind of dig their heels in sometimes? Like, like I know, no, it's that's an, that's an open-ended question. It's not a, a statement or an assertion to dig your heels in about. I'm just asking them, what is the evidence you absolutely must satisfy your craving? And then sometimes they give me pseudo-evidence such like, as, like well, I'll... What's that? Yeah, like what? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, like I'll feel good if I have that hamburger. So I then I say, well, that's evidence you prefer to have the hamburger because you prefer to feel good, but you didn't answer the question, what's the evidence you must do which will make you feel good and have the hamburger? Uh, and then they say, well, if I don't have the hamburger and I give up meat, I'm going to feel weak and it's going to be very uncomfortable. And then again, I say, well, you didn't answer the question. The question is, why must you do what you prefer and avoid feeling weak and uncomfortable? Not why do you prefer it? We can list a number of reasons why you prefer to avoid those feelings. But what's doing you in is the must, that you have to avoid the feelings. It's an absolute necessity. It'll destroy you if you don't. What's the evidence for that? And then pretty soon they relent and say, well, I guess, I don't know. The, I, don't know. What's, uh, I don't know what the evidence is. And then I say, that's the right answer. You don't know what the evidence is because there is no evidence. There's no evidence why you have to do what you prefer to do. Uh, and then they generally get to see the light. Mm -hmm. So, And they, they don't end up with, with cognitive dissonance around, well, there's no evidence, but I still believe it? Oh, yes, that happens at first, that there's no evidence, and they write out all the reasons why there's no evidence and why the must is false, but they still believe it more strongly, and that's where the practice and repetition and reinforcement comes in. Gotcha. So, so I could see how working with you or working with a three-minute therapy process could help with specifics. Is there, if you, but if you could imagine like a, a low-frustration-tolerance gym, like a place where people could go to learn to increase their frustration tolerance. Would it just be working on these issues or would there be other things involved as well? Would there be physical aspects to it, emotional aspects, experiences? Like if you wanted to create a group of people with exceedingly high frustration tolerance, how would you go about it? Uh, well, to face discomfort ruthlessly, bite the bullet and face discomfort wherever you find it in your life. And with different people, it's different things. So you mentioned the gym. With some people, it's working out on the treadmill. They find that very uncomfortable. So force yourself, push yourself to go on the treadmill and run on the treadmill for 20 minutes a day. Or with some people, it's uh, talking to people. Some people are allergic to using the phone or they are allergic to speaking up in class or in groups uh, because it's uncomfortable. So push yourself to speak up and uh, whenever you can in groups, say unpopular things, anything you'd feel uncomfortable doing, push yourself to do it. Of course, nothing that's going to get you wound up in jail, but, <laughs> but things that are a little more reasonable. Push yourself, push yourself. Don't give in to discomfort. And I think that is, would be a good way to develop high frustration tolerance. Okay. Um. So for someone who's listening to this, who's struggled with compulsive eating, overeating, binging, maybe other addictions, 
um, let's say they want to see somebody locally in person, like, you know, like I guess you have a practice in San Francisco. Yes. So people come and see you. If someone, if someone wanted to find someone like you in their area, how would they go about doing it? What are the questions they would ask and the answers they would expect? Well, uh, the easy way to do it is to go to a website called NACBT.org, and that stands for National Association of Cognitive Behavior Therapists, NACBT.org, and they have a referral page there where they list therapists who do this kind of therapy all over the country. I also do phone and Skype sessions regularly with people around the U.S. and around the world, so that's another option. People can go to my website, 3minutetherapy.com. That's the name of my book, 3-Minute Therapy, and 3 is spelled out. It's the word, and 3-Minute Therapy is all one word, 3minutetherapy.com, and uh, you can contact me through my email address there, my phone number there, and also I have some chapters from my book that you can read at no charge on my website, many articles, videos, uh, interviews, those kinds of things. Uh, so there's uh, much information there. Also, as we were discussing earlier, Albert Ellis is the founder of this approach. He's written over 80 books. So go to Amazon and put in Albert Ellis and you'll get his books. And he also has some YouTubes. Uh, so there are many ways to learn this approach and practice this approach. And I get emails from people around the world who just say they read my book and it helped them change dramatically. So uh, there are various ways to accomplish that if you, if you can't find someone in your area to work with. Gotcha. So a after they buy, and they can buy your book as a, a physical book on Amazon? Yes, or Kindle. Or Kindle. Great. And if they, after reading that, if they, if they wanted to read one of Albert Ellis's 80 books, which is the one you'd start them on? Uh, well, one of the uh, early seminal books was called A Guide to Rational Living. Okay. And there's a, a newer one just called How to Be Happy. I believe that that's the title. It has happy in the title, so that's another good one. But there are many good ones. He has books also on specific problems. He has one on anger, one on anxiety, um, on addictions. So there are many specific books of his that you can read. Also, I do. I have a few other books that are specific. One is on drinking. It's called Rational Drinking, How to Live Happily with or Without Alcohol. And I have one on performance anxiety. It's called Stage Fright. Ah. 40, 40 stars tell you how they beat America's number one fear. Uh, on public, it's basically about public speaking or public performing. Wow! So you you went and interviewed uh, a bunch of very well known per performers who perform at very high stakes. Yes, actually, my co-author of the book, an actor, Mick Berry, uh, had connections with actors and and famous people, and uh, interviewed them. We also had an interview with Albert Ellis, uh, which is uh, in the book. <laughs> That's that's really this is kind of off the topic, but you know, I'm, like everybody else, I'm a little starstruck. Um, did did these celebrities um, talk about this happily? Like, was it, you know, is is this a topic that kind of interested them and and uh, occupied their mind how they how they did this and the fact that they could? Oh yes, people love to talk about themselves. So we had uh, 
Jason Alexander, who was in Seinfeld, and Robin Williams, Melissa Etheridge, Maya Angelou, David Brenner, um, many well-known people. And an interesting thing about this is that most of them said, even after performing many, many years, they still got anxious. And that gets to another topic called secondary disturbance. People often make themselves anxious about being anxious. Hmm. That's a secondary disturbance. And uh, the first step is to work on the secondary disturbance, except the fact that as a human, you'll get anxious at times. It's human nature. There's no reason you're above the human condition. So if you accept that, that you'll get anxious at times, allow yourself to get anxious, then that in itself will greatly diminish your anxiety. Gotcha. So, so what, these, what these people were facing um, when they appeared on stage or, or in high-stakes situations is is really no different than what we anyone experiences at any point in their life, right? There's some thought that 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 kind of all or nothing awfulizes and and makes an unreasonable demand on themselves, on others, or on life. It's the same yeah. same thing, huh? Uh, exactly. All through history and all through cultures, uh, people have this kind of thinking. They escalate their preferences, and in different cultures, they have different preferences, so that's different. But what they all do is escalate them into demands, musts and shoulds, because that's the way our brains are structured. Gotcha. Um, final, final question. So if, if, if people are listening to this and they're uh, lucky enough to be parents of young children that they haven't screwed up yet, do you, do you have any sort of general advice about how to raise children who make fewer of these mental mistakes and have higher frustration tolerance? Yes, uh, there are two main suggestions. One is, first, as a parent, look to yourself. Don't make yourself anxious, angry, depressed, addicted, so you'll be good role models for your children. And then you could model more rational thinking. So if you get anxious, you could say, I'm anxious now because I think I must not get fired, but that's false. I prefer not to get fired. Or if the kid spills the juice, you could say, you did a bad thing, but you're not a bad person. It would be preferable not to spill the juice, but there's no reason you must not. So I have my parents modeling this kind of thinking, even with their very young children, and uh, that helps the kids reinforce it for themselves. Terrific. Terrific. And, and, and finally, you, you and I met, I think, through uh, Proteinaholic. Right. Yeah. So, can you br briefly describe your uh, your plant based journey? Yes, uh, I used to eat the standard American diet in the seventies, and then I read an article in Time magazine about Nathan Pritikin, and I began to think about the effect of what goes into my mouth on my body and my health. And I, I started to give up various foods, fried foods, high salt foods, red meat. So I did it slowly. And then I came across, I moved out west here and I came across John McDougall. And uh, he moved me along further in the vegan direction. And now uh, I like Joel Furman's approach, the nutritarian approach, where you focus on high nutrient, low calorie foods. And that just happens to be green leafy vegetables and fruit and nuts and seeds. And, and uh, I avoid oil and uh, animal products because they're very low in their nutrient uh, density. All right. And do you, do you find that the, you know, these, these and other leaders in the plant-based community 
you wish they knew what you know about how to get people to change? Or do you think we're doing a good job at, at helping people adopt this diet? I think that uh, in general, they're doing a very good job in getting the word out. There are tons of YouTubes that you've made with Garth Davis and other people and John McDougall and uh, Joel Furman. Michael Greger sends out uh, a YouTube practically every day. <laughs> so I think they're doing a great job. They're really not therapists, so uh, that's not their field. But in terms of what their field is, I think they're doing quite well. All right. Well, um, I've taken up a, almost an hour of your time. I'm so appreciative. It was, we had a great conversation last time on that crazy TV show. And this, this feels a lot more uh, sort of calm and focused. And you know, I, I think this is going to be it's going to be so helpful to people to hear, you know, that there are these three minute exercises. So I, I recommend people go to three minute therapy dot com, T-H-R-E-E minute therapy dot com. Find your book on Amazon. And it really it really is, you know, this this key understanding of a simple difference that it's not that hard to convince ourselves. It, it's made a huge difference in my life over the past couple of months since I came across you and your work and I hope everybody else benefits from it as well. So Dr. Michael Edelstein, thank you so much for taking the time today. Oh, you're welcome, Howard. Thanks for a great interview. Right, take care. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast. You can check out the show notes with links to everything we talked about and Michael's books at plantyourself.com slash 162. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 160 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast, but not the weekly email newsletter, go to plantyourself.com and sign up top right. This week and next week and the week after, I'm uh, including a special offer in the email newsletter. That's to help people uh, jump the hurdle and, and get on it. And the special offer is to join uh, for free for a month my Healthy Habit Huddles. And I do three of them a month on what days? On Monday mornings, 10 a.m. Eastern time for an hour. And it's a group of us getting together and talking about how to instill healthy habits in our lives. It's uh, me doing teaching and answering questions. So if you'd like to join for a month for free, just head over to plantyourself.com, sign up for the newsletter, and in the weekly newsletter that comes out for this episode or next one or maybe the one after that, that offer will be in there and you can sign up. You don't need a credit card. There's no obligation. I'm not going to, you know, suddenly start charging you because you've forgotten about it. Nothing like that. Big thanks to Plant Yourself Podcast patrons Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Morrow, Elizabeth Clifton, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Kristen Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Vilkanovsky, David Bizek, and the mysterious Michelle X for your generous support of the podcast. If you would like to support this show, you can share this in other episodes on social media via email. You can write a review on iTunes. Man, that helps a lot. Can't tell you how much it helps. And you can become a patron by pledging some amount, one time or ongoing, to the podcast over at plantyourself.com. I used to think of it as like a donation. I don't anymore because I feel like it's karma. Like if you're getting a lot of value out of the podcast and you want to give me some money, like it's a nice gift back. It's not uh, a donation. I don't feel like I'm, I'm begging here. So uh, be that as it may. Next week on the show, I talk with Tim Kaufman. Tim is another incredible inspirational story. 
I met Tim through our mutual friend, Josh Lajani, and like Josh, Tim is now a beast of a distance runner. And like Josh, he's also lost about 200 pounds on his journey of running and plants. Tim is wonderfully modest about all this. And one of the quotes he gave me that I really like is, I don't understand what the fuss is about. I'm just a fat guy who ate an apple. When you hear the story, you'll hear how much more it is than that and how truly inspiring Tim and his journey are. In garden news, the basil is still coming on strong. The blueberries have turned the corner and now we're getting about a pound a day. And our summer squash is very disappointing. We got two little green zucchinis and then all the plants died from probably stem borers. And just as we were looking at those mournful little zucchinis and the the rows that have nothing in them. Got a call from our neighbor. Um, he came over and he brought us a basket of the most beautiful yellow squash, summer squash, we'd ever seen. So it kind of reminded me that uh, self-sufficiency is not just about what we can grow, but it's about the relationships we can build with other people around us who can supplement where we fall short. So until next week, as always, be well, my friends. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Reidenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willreidenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Mr. Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Kinoski, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, hi Janet, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham, Gil David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, The Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Aviva L, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Amadzen, Ollie Levine, The Inscrutable Harry R, Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Cobble, Julian Rodkins, Breed O'Connell. Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Dan Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazleton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justin Divich, Joshua Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Bacorny, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Cartz, Dean Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullich, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parang Ganshi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidorowska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sawyer Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, and Sarah Johnson for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs> <laughs>